Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss point-of-care ultrasonography, POCUS, in critical care. The application of ultrasound at the bedside continues to evolve and grow within critical care. However, there is still significant variability in its adoption among ICU practices. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss key trends in technology, the relationship of POCUS to consultative ultrasonography, growing clinical applications, and, and challenges that we can might face with POCUS. We are honored to have Dr. Jose Luis Diaz Gomez as our expert guest today. Dr. Diaz Gomez is the Chief of Transplant Cardiovascular and Mechanical Support Critical Care and Director of Critical Care Echocardiography at Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center in Houston, Texas. He is also a Senior Faculty in Cardiovascular Anesthesia and Critical Care at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Dr. Diaz Gomez is a recognized expert in critical care echocardiography and the lead author of a recent review article on this topic in the New England Journal of Medicine a consummate clinician, a master educator, and a wonderful person. Jose, welcome to Critical Matters. Dr. Sanori, thank you so much. Uh, I, it is my privilege to be in your uh, now very famous podcast. Uh, I have no words to express my appreciation, and I would say most of my friends are always very, very committed to your podcast. So once again, I'm, I'm looking forward to have one of my best discussions in my life with you. Excellent. And as I said before we started recording, this is a conversation among friends. So it's Sergio and Jose. That's how we, we roll here. Okay. Jose, um, let's start with terminology. Just to find focus for us and, uh, and what it is and what it's not. Sergio. This is probably one of the those moments that I feel absolutely humble in my life. And when we submitted a previous um, work to the New England Union of Medicine several years back, it was actually uh, it was a video in clinical medicine regarding the left ventricular systolic function. And at the time, we actually have, of course, a very very rigorous review. And as far as the terminology is concerned, we needed to actually come to an agreement that we'll not be using ultrasound. We're gonna be using the term ultrasonography. So in our review article, we define point of care ultrasonography, defined as the acquisition, interpretation, and immediate clinical integration of ultrasonographic imaging performed by a treating clinician at the patient's bedside rather than a radiologist or cardiologist. That definition has created so much, so much controversy. I already have been invited to meetings with many parties. And on behalf of the authors of the article, Dr. Paul Mayo, Dr. Seth Coney, and myself, we do believe point of care ultrasonography is well-defined in the article. So somebody will tell you, well, Sergio, what's the deal between saying ultrasound and ultrasonography? Well, the fact of the matter is that when you are just describing the tool is ultrasound, but how to apply the tool is ultrasonography. And I'm telling you, in that previous process with the New England Journal of Medicine, we needed to accept that moving forward, we're gonna be using ultrasonography. So we are all focused on knowing how we're gonna make the best application of a tool. And that we will go more in detail about it, but it's not about the gadget. It's about how we will incorporate in our practice. So I just wanted to clarify that a specific term of ultrasonography rather than the ultrasound. Thank you. 
and that's that's a great point. And and it just uh, it, it's impossible for me to not think about the stethoscope. And uh, when I was preparing for for our conversation, I came up uh, about a quote from um, over a hundred years ago, Jose. And I'll read it to you, and I'll let you react. Sure. That it will ever come into general use, notwithstanding its value, I'm extremely doubtful because its beneficial application requires much time and gives a good deal of trouble both to the patient and the practitioner. That was a comment on the stethoscope when it first was presented as a tool. What do you think of that and how it, it can be made into an analogy into your, your journey with ultrasound as an anesthesia critical care clinician? I think this is demonstrating once again what, why you are one of, one of the most educated, eloquent, and articulate friends that I have. And I have to say that if we apply the same to ultrasound and ultrasonography in that specific, uh, you know, sequence, meaning incorporating this in our practice, that's, that's what's going to happen. It's a matter of time. The, the widespread availability of the tool is there. But think about how people are using the tool. They are adapting that tool utilization to the scope of practice, to political issues they might have in their institutions, to lack of resources in some parts of the planet. So because of that, you just inspire me. I think what you just described is what actually will describe uh, the utilization of point-of-care ultrasonography moving forward. And I think it just speaks to how it, it takes time in medicine, even though we've been talking about point-of-care ultrasonography for some years now, um, as we mentioned earlier, as of now uh, in Houston, where we both are, there's probably plenty of critically ill patients who are having problems that or questions that could be answered with the point-of-care ultrasound that are not having that uh, as part of their care. And yet there might be some that, that do have it as part of, of their care. Yet we don't see anybody walk around the hospital without a stethoscope today. So I think that over time, we definitely need to move in that direction. It's just a technology that is 150 years newer and right and better. But uh, let's let's dive into this then. And uh, why not talk about technology a little bit, Jose? So obviously there's been an evolution in technology that always is required for adoption, right? One of the big limiting factors uh, many years ago was just the acquisition of a technology that allowed you to, to obtain ultrasonographic um, images at the bedside that was prohibitive for most clinicians. But there's been some key trends in uh, the evolution of um, ultrasound machines, but also in other technology um, that might really have an impact on uh, the adoption of ultrasonography throughout the, the critical care arena. Could you talk about those? Absolutely. Sergio, son of, without having any bias, son of the largest and more um, prolific and successful companies in the planet has been able to evolve in that direction because only one single word, simplicity. They may seem simple. So if you think about it, over the last decade, what has happened with point-of-care ultrasonography is that the technology has made it much more simpler, that application to the clinical practice. Why? Number one, the handheld ultrasound systems became more affordable. I'm not gonna mention any specific names here for obvious reasons, but when you have a device that probably is in the range of the $2,000, then it, be, it became more accessible to others that need it. They uh, probably a much higher presence of internet in every single country on the planet and having sophisticated wireless technology. Then everything comes together. So now from there, now we have a tool that I will tell you, and let's do a contrast what you just said about the stethoscope. Would you imagine that the stethoscope will bring in pulmonologists 
anesthesiologists, and paramedics together, that's unreal. Ultrasound does. Ultrasonography does it. Why? Now you have these wireless technology, more affordable handheld systems, and people want to collaborate. They want to take better care of their patients. So I have engaged since probably in the last seven years in telementoring. I go to some countries, some places. Hey, would you mind? You can guide me. Sure, absolutely. If I can, then now in real time, I can guide somebody how to improve the skill and, and actually even make better diagnosis. The companies have been actually able to produce some specific advancements. For, for instance, now you have silicon chip arrays microsensors instead of piezoelectric crystals elements to make one probe that actually can have a wider range of frequencies. So instead of having two probes, one for linear and one for uh, phase arrays to take a look at the heart versus blood vessels, now you can have that, that capability in only one probe. In moving forward, we're actually now empowering the tool with different modalities of ultrasonography, such as Doppler and mode. And even um, you're gonna incorporate now analytics and quantitation features if you are now even involving the concept of artificial intelligence. Have you seen that repertoire? It's not that amazing that in the coming decade, you can have something connected to your iPhone or um, other, you know, Galaxy phone, whatever phone is, whatever smartphone is, and then all of a sudden you are connected with an expert, and all of a sudden you have tools to have a more objective evaluation of your patients. That's tremendously helpful from the technological standpoint. That's not an issue, and it just will be promising and promising year after year. Yeah, certainly the the evolution is is a is a rapid pace. I mean, and we think about our lifetimes, just what has happened with computers, right? I mean, very similar or analogous evolution we're seeing with ultrasound. I I remember that um, obviously when we were all training, there was echocardiography that usually would be ordered, and somebody would do it. Either a technician would do a transthoracic, or a cardiologist would do a transesophageal, or anesthesiologist would do it in the OR. Um, and that's the way you would get these images. And now, like you said, I mean, there's people walking around the hospital with their own ultrasounds. There's portable ultrasounds in a lot of ICUs, and it's being utilized a lot more. But I'm, I want to probe a little bit more into that last portion that goes beyond the evolution of the hardware, which is the software, right, which is the AI. And uh, that seems to be uh, rapidly approaching us, right? And um, my vision of AI and medicine is not that AI replaces our thinking, but that it supplements our thinking and that a clinician plus AI is the way to go probably. And that seems to be happening already in ultrasound. Can you talk a little bit about that, Jose? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed with this uh, interchange as colleagues and friends. And now I understand we get along so well. There is a book by um, author, uh, his name is Eric Larson. Uh, the book is The Myth of Artificial Intelligence, Why Computers can, Cannot Think the Way We Do. And although I have participated in, in one study, um, having artificial intelligence to have um, automated you know, calculation of ejection fraction, I can tell you that we need to put things into consideration. In that book, you have the three different reasons that any focus user should keep in mind. We have deductive, deductive reasoning, we have inductive reasoning, and we have abductive reasoning. So I don't want to confuse the podcast membership. As you know, I love Latin in that uh, deduction induction and abduction, actually, the, all those three words are based on the Latin duchere, meaning to lead. So when you have deduction derived from generally accepted statements or facts, 
when you have induction leads you to a generalization. Those two, we, we got it. And that's the reason artificial intelligence is powerful. However, the prefix app for abduction reasoning means away. And this is the component. This is the component. That away means that sometimes we will have the application of focus in a clinical context and the common sense that we might apply sometimes in some of our clinical decision making is not, it cannot be incorporated at this time in artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is not up there. And for that reason, I can go in a specific clinical situations later on with you. So the way I look at it is I'm open to the concept, but it will take many years to really have that equalization on performance to say that artificial intelligence will solve all the issues of focus. Perhaps the, the application that is coming really, really fast, and I really applaud all the success that the um, software company have done on this, is the prescriptive imaging, meaning that when you are procuring the echocardiography view, you will have guidance to get it right. But one thing is to have an image. Another thing is to put that image into the context and take decisions for your patient. So I'm open to it, but I will remain critical moving forward, and I will make sure that um, the application of point of care ultrasonography is on the highest benefit for patient safety moving forward. Excellent. And I think that this is a good place to, to start moving towards the clinical application of uh, a point of care ultrasonography. And uh, perhaps we can start with uh, its use as a guidance in performing procedures. I, I don't have data on this, Jose, but I would imagine that that is probably a more common use. I think that it's probably more likely that even people who were trained before the era of point of care ultrasonography are utilizing it for central line insertions and for A lines. But why don't you tell us a little bit about in the critical care context, how do you see this uh, use of guidance in performing procedures? Maybe some common procedures first and then some more novel or less common procedures that you've seen it being utilized for. Thank you. That's that's a very important question. And I would think as uh, the procedural application of point of care ultrasonography is a valid one, separate one. It's separate from the diagnostic one. So when we're doing procedures, if you are able to have real-time imaging, and that's the reason I was inspired to do one of my previous studies, uh, performing thoracentesis, or big catheter placement, and the real-time ultrasonography is different than marking, you know. And I have, I'm biased about it. But when you're talking about the applicability itself, I will always say, why cannot be done under real-time ultrasonography? That's the first principle. Number two, I think for all your podcast membership, it's very valid that probably the most mature application, nobody can question, is the vascular axis of the internal jugular vein. And you think about it, the insertion depth to get that vessel is probably close to an inch the majority of the time. And you even don't remember how much that inch is, it's just, just fold your thumb. That's the reason in Spanish, that's a pulgada, one inch. You, you basically bend your thumb that distance from the tip of the thumb to what is bending, you know, to the, to the joint, interphalange joint. That is the distance that I believe 99% of the intensities, the critical care providers should feel comfortable and they should feel they are doing something safely you are in that range. And that's actually one of the principles I apply on a daily basis. So you master that, and from that one, you actually start migrating to any other body fluid you need to drain 
if you need to drain for therapeutic reasons or for diagnostic reasons. Let's say you have somebody with pneumonia. You want to see whether or not it's an exudate. There might be some findings with ultrasonography that's more, more for exudate, but you still want the, to do the likes criteria and all that. You go with that principle. So I, that's the way the novice should start. And then I can show you cases where more challenging procedures such as a pericardiosynthesis, my approach, and I have showed this in, in, in meetings, that approach of having even one inch depth. I have a case where I did an apical approach in the apical view, two centimeters. I was in the pericardial space. I inserted the pigtail and I drained half a liter and the patient had a good outcome. So it's, it, the bottom line is you need to know how to start with the safest you know, principle and you go from there. And you always need to understand that the real time visualization of the tip of the needle is an absolutely non-negotiable aspect. You need to see where that needle is going. You might become more sophisticated. Oh, Jose, I want a microconvex probe. Oh, I want the in-plane approach or out-of-plane approach. This, these are, you know, variants to, to the performance of, of the procedure. But the fact of the matter is that you should try to see the tip of the needle as you are advancing in the body. And you can do that. And right now we have many uh, millennials. Uh, there are folks that actually are really good on video games. There, are, there is research in that regard. They compare video games performance between uh, female and, and, and male provide. By the way, there is no difference. There was no difference. This is all this kind of uh, knowledge that is out there in terms of how you improve your visual spatial, spatial orientation with ultrasonography. Because in the end, it's how you're moving your hands and how you're visualizing the tissues. So I hope with this general principle, you imagine how really can enhance the safety uh, on the procedural aspect of our practice, but you need to make sure you have control over the visualization of the needle. It's just not exploring blindly. No way. You need to see the people of the needle. Excellent. And I think that's a that's a very valid point and something that um, all of us, I mean, uh, should, should keep in mind. In terms of, uh, of other procedures, uh, Jose, could you expand maybe on some procedures that maybe 10 years ago or five years ago you were not doing with ultrasound that now you are? Absolutely. So, 10 years ago, parasynthesis. Yeah, we were all afraid of hitting the pigastric artery. Nowadays, you can do Doppler, you do it big time. 10 years ago, when I have issues finding um, the good spot to have actually uh, having an LP, having attempts, multiple attempts, and being afraid of causing a hematoma, now you can do a lumbar puncture with ultrasonography. 10 years ago, you probably um, were not that um, doing half alternatives to have a pericardiosynthesis, all most of the techniques were actually only subcostal approach. Now you can do apical and even a parasternal approach. So these are just examples of how we have been able to um, really, really advance our practice. So, um, Lastly, um, I would say this, uh, I'm, I'm envisioning how the ICU will have even a separate suite, a suite that we are able to actually embrace the next level of performance with procedures. And by the way, in one of my, the first institution after I was out of training, we actually had it and probably they still have it there. But 10 years later, I can tell you, I will advocate even in the, in, the, in the designing of the ICU, having a room to have procedures, having, you know, even in the future, um, fluoroscopy in addition to ultrasonography, that will avoid patients even traveling in an elevator and having safety issues. So I'm a very, 
very strong advocate about empowering intensities for perceived ultrasonography. Excellent. Um, and we, we'll talk more about the training uh, towards the end and competence. But before we go there, uh, the other aspect of clinical application obviously relates to examinations, uh, monitoring, and diagnosis. Uh, can we talk a little bit about the diagnostic accuracy first in terms of comparing bedside ultrasonography or POCUS ultrasonography to other modalities for common medical conditions that we might encounter in the ICU? Thank you, Sergio. Uh, definitely, um, this was my personal experience. When I started doing ultrasonography out of my fellowship, I have huge roadblocks. Um, and that actually, I, I, I'm not gonna deny that actually made me an excellent critical care ultrasonography user because it was a high state situation. Probably one of the most prestigious groups of cardiology in the country in the world. And anytime I was having the problem in my hands, like, what are we gonna say? And people will be, how are we gonna document this in the chart? So I needed to find a way that I can, I actually can justify the application. And I still believe it's a good way to start. Jose, what do you mean? Well, I was just not with the probe, putting the probe on people looking for incidental findings. I put the probe on patients that were having a clinical problem. So from the very early stages in my career on ultrasonography, I recognized that acute respiratory failure and undifferentiated arterial hypotension were two common clinical presentations where the tool and the, the ultrasonography itself, that evaluation will allow me to take better care of my patients. And I want to make sure everybody understands that it's just not the image. I consider myself at the moment I started practicing critical care ultrasonography, a good clinician. The secret here is how to actually uh, build that hybrid between clinical excellence and excellence in point of care ultrasonography. If you, if you are able to demonstrate that to me, you will most likely never will have a major issue. The problem is when you, you disconnect both. So going back to the question, I believe in acute respiratory failure, when I started reading about it and see how I have a case I will share with you very briefly, 3 a.m. in the morning, patient goes from a MICU to a cardiothoracic ICU for ECMO commencement. I put the probe and seeing large pleural effusion. I put two chest tubes, of course, you know, put with a good amount of time to not create more um, pulmonary edema. And I was able to drain four liters between the two hemithoraces. Six hours later, that patient was back in the MICU. She needed an ECMO. I have that case. I have the pictures. I will never forget that case. How I started with acute respiratory failure. What happened? Your chest X-ray does not perform at the level of lung ultrasonography for characterization of pleural effusion. So I started looking more and more in detail. So I would say that the diagnostic accuracy as it is right now, first of all, is the, probably the most cost-effective and less with less side effects in terms of uh, health problems than any other ones for acute respiratory failure and for shock. So obviously are, are very common conditions in our practice. And I think hence the, 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 the real interest in adoption or rapidly um, evolving adoption in, in the critical care world. Um, Jose, you, you talked about uh, obviously uh, cardiac arrest, uh, sorry, you talked about shock and respiratory failure, but cardiac arrest is often part of those um, diseases, unfortunately. Could you give us a little bit more of your thoughts of how to apply um, and the utility 
uh, from basic to more advanced of utilizing point of care ultrasound during a cardiac arrest. So you're always finding the way to really go to significant problems, and that's a problem. You just mentioned in the last statement, you need to really achieve an advanced training to make a call in a cardiac arrest. So why critical care ultrasonography is not actually um, incorporated around the planet in every single cold blue? It is not. It probably will be one statement there, but it's not. there is no recommendation about that. Why? Well, number one, when you go to these rec international recommendations, they go by the evidence. So what is the evidence on that? Well, the evidence that we have at the beginning came out from, came out from Europe, and they were in pre-hospital cardiac arrest, and then in the last decade, we have actually um, many more studies. And those studies actually have been showing us that might be some value making prognostication. Do I use a prognostication sometimes? Yes. I'm not, I'm not gonna deny that. But to make it, to make it standard of care for the care of caring uh, for patients victims from cardiac arrest, I do believe you need to have advanced critical care echocardiography um, competence. I will tell you why. The reason why is because you will be under pressure, you will have limitations to make a call. And I want to make clarity to the membership of the podcast about, I'm talking about transthoracic echocardiography. So what happened in the last five years is that um, several groups, and more specifically, most of those uh, colleagues have been more from the emergency department. Uh, they actually have been smart utilizing now transesophageal echocardiography for cardiac arrest because you decrease the variability on the assessment. And to be sincere with you, T is easier than TTE. You have transesophageal echoes, clear pictures, you are not in the way of anybody. Once the patient intubated, you put the echo probe there. So during the last seven years, there is mountain evidence, but the evidence, once again, is not at the level to incorporate in, in guidelines for management of cardiac arrest. So the way I look at it, this actually is one of my, um, has been, I'm a cardiac anesthesiologist as well. I have advanced certification in transesophageal echo. But the reason I'm mentioning this is because people like me need to empower an average intensivist. If for some reason there is a TE probe in that institution, you shouldn't be afraid to use it. And that actually is our next step. I'm predicting that in the management of cardiac arrest, there is a, there is a good likelihood that TE might be preferable over TTE. There is not that evidence there yet, but the way actually emergency medicine is doing what they are doing is becoming more and more resounding, and I think there is a good chance here that TE will perform. So I just want to leave it up there. I think that's a very promising aspect of point of care ultrasonography, but there are many political issues that are potential danger because the patient might have esophageal rupture. That will be very hard for the American Heart Associations to say yes every single code blue will have a TE or you have a TTE, how you can ensure that that person is competent to make a call that the, pa the patient will go to the OR or the patient need TPA, whatever measure you are saying. So the bottom line is this, is a promising area for point of care ultrasonography. It's very exciting and at least you can start applying it. If you feel that you're your competency level is in the in the high end. And be open to actually have that quality assurance with the cardiologist. 
you if you believe that you make a good a good diagnosis, show those clips to the cardiologist. This is what I think it's saying. You have to have that kind of level. And you're able to do it, sure. And I will tell you in publication I have made or my respect that I gained in that first institution after I got trained was based on saving people in cardiac arrest. But those anecdotes cannot actually lead to be, um, didn't allow me to to lead that discussion of, oh yeah, now it's a standard because that's not the way it's gonna happen. We need more data. Yeah, absolutely. And Jose, any, any comments on the COVID-19? Uh, obviously, uh, my experience has been that historically, if people are old enough as us, they might remember that the argument was that ultrasound is not good for the lung because of air back in the day. And now, obviously, more and more people are putting probes on the chest, looking at the lungs, and uh, more than just fluid. So any comments on how it's been integrated or studied in COVID-19? Absolutely. I think, uh, I think the Wind Focus organization did a very good job with those, um, you know, um, international guidelines. I, I like the fact that actually they organized that really well because they they identified those nine uh, clinical domains for diagnosis, you know, of um, severe acute respiratory syndrome in COVID-19. So uh, you triage, you were actually doing that assessment, following the patient closely, and actually, there were some investigations even correlating that with oxygenation, et cetera. So the initial triage and research stratification, um, that, was, that was huge. And then there were findings for the diagnosis of the pneumonia, not only that, cardiovascular disease as well associated with it. And then a screening for uh, venous thromboembolic disease. And not only that, we were able to see what happens when we were proning the patients and whether or not there was a response to proning position and, and our fluid management. And then we are actually were able even to to reduce the the um, the the potential um, uh, spread of infection due to to that infection control that we might have with with these devices instead of um, having like the formal um, echocardiography from room to room. So uh, I think has been very favorable uh, and the personal standpoint, for instance, I remember, I think, yeah, I think we included that in one in my publication last year. Um, I did with one of my cardiology fellows and that's, this is the beauty of critical care ultrasonography. You, it, it takes you to the next level of see what you can do better as a clinician. And that day, I prone a patient, and actually the patient was in a, in a rotoprone, uh, you know, bed, and I was trying to see the heart in prone position, and I needed to um, kind of see how that contrast obtaining the apical view versus when the patient was in the to supine. I was able to obtain the view. I was able to actually distinguish the diastology function in both positions, et cetera. Try to see how the right ventricular function was different as well. And I learned. I learned on the fly. I never have done that in a patient that was with that disease in prone position. And it helped me out. And we, I think we put that, yeah, for one of our publications last year. So definitely that. Uh, the other one was, oh, my God. I've been rescuing patients that I have refractory hypoxemia, receiving ECMO. Some of those patients have, um, you know, single lumen catheter. Uh, the catheter was in malposition, displaced, and once again, we were able to publish that as well. And although I have patients like that before that had the malposition, et cetera, but uh, in, 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 the, in the case of COVID, what happened was uh, that the ELSO was recommending a specific cannulation and somehow some of the providers were not following the recommendations. So that was another way to engage cardiology colleagues and do what is right for the patient, know what they were wanting to do. So, so it, it once again, myriad, myriad of applications on COVID 
definitively, I think, for any future pandemic, ultrasonography will be in the armamentarium, first line armamentarium for any clinician. Perfect. I, I want to talk a little bit about challenges. And I know that uh, we've uh, offline have talked about challenges with POCUS and really it, from my understanding of how you view it, it, it goes beyond just diagnostic errors. So if you could just give us some of your um, evident and hidden challenges uh, with POCUS, I think that would be very valuable. That's probably the first question that any person who wants to utilize the tool has to know. What are your limitations? Some of them are obvious, other ones are not so obvious. So if I share with you, you know, the most the most common challenges, I will tell you the very number one, and please do not forget this from me, is time. Time. To do a good ultrasonography evaluation, you need time. I don't want to see you in a situation that you are not taking care of the patients. You know, you have you have to round 15, 20 patients. I don't know what your practice is. It might be even only eight patients, but three of them actually are sicker or they need to you need to discuss something with a patient about end of life, whatever. Ultrasound cannot deviate the attention of prioritization in your ICU. Ultrasound takes time to do it well. So time is number one. You need to become very organized. How are you going to do it? The ultrasound machine should be ready to go. You can have your wipes to get it ready, to get utilized. You can name a champion. can be your fellow, your colleague, your nurse. If you're in a community hospital, the importance is, is that you have to be efficient. Okay? So the time is important. Number two, the other limitation is to acknowledge that always will be people who would disagree with you utilizing the tool. And that what the impact that, that you have on you as a clinician will be only one, how I become competent. Once you are determined to become competent, the next step in that limitation is how I can relate to others, how I can start collaborating with others that are better than I on this. And that equals to radiologists and cardiologists. Right now, I can say, I can say here in this podcast, I'm, I'm very privileged because my cardiology leader in the institution I work in right now is the president of the American Society of Cardiography. Our discussions are very, very deep. I have instances where there was an AI company wanted to come to the institution. They approached me directly. And, you know, just because he has access to all the resources and he has much more um, political uh, leverage across the board, how can I put my ego first? Oh, yeah, they are coming to talk to Diaz Gomez and probably want you to be uh, the consultant for that company, et cetera. I don't care about that. What I care is like, I engage somebody who is a leader in a primary image in a specialty to be aware of that. I always tell him, the problem that cardiologists have is they haven't been enough in the ICU to understand our reality. That's my primary interest. They come and they see what we face. So that's the third limitation I just mentioned is the lack of collaboration. If you, if you don't know how to collaborate with others, you will have issues with ultrasonography. People are going to block you. And the number four will be that um, ability or the, the limitation itself will be not exposing you to feedback. You need to expose yourself, yourself to feedback. What I'm talking about is feedback from every standpoint. The nurses should tell you how I don't want to see patients with bruises, bleeding in the skin. I don't want to see gel on patients and not be cleaned up. 
I don't want, that's part of your professionalism. But at the same time, I don't want to see you believing that your views are the best and an expert or somebody who's more experienced tell you, hey, you know what? You should do better on this. I think you were describing a pretty fusion, but actually it was a pretty fusion. Where's your quality assurance? Pretty much. Those are probably my top four limitations and in a way you transition uh, even before talking about that you make, a mid, mid, you have a mixed diagnosis, you have a diagnostic errors. So if you, if you join in that journey, I can predict you that, I can predict that down the road, the possibility for you to end up on diagnostic errors is much less. That is you, from the beginning, you ignore these limitations, that you jump on this journey, but you become overconfident, you believe that you don't need anybody else, and you don't care about what other people say, and you just want to put this on the web, look at my awesome diagnosis I made. And by the way, that diagnosis even might not change the outcome of the patient, to be honest. That diagnosis might not even change the mortality of our patients. So it's, it, it is point of the ultrasonography has made me more humble, and I still believe I need to learn more. For instance, believe it or not, I'm not that strong in 3D, um, 3D echocardiography because that's more utilizing the OR. And now I have spent the majority of my time in the ICU. I'm going back to the cardiac OR in March. And now I know I need to brush out my concepts on 3D. So see, everything becomes relative and you really need to have that self-awareness how you're gonna utilize the tool. So please um, keep in mind these limitations because what Sergio was mentioning is absolutely crucial in terms of um, preventing potential diagnostic errors down the road. So before we, we go, I guess, uh, to the next phase, which I think is a perfect uh, segue, what I wanted to, to kind of ca encapsulate what you were saying is something that I've seen a lot over the last two years with the pandemic, which is obviously very well described in, in as a cognitive bias, which is the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Which is uh, the bias that people starting with a low ability as they become more proficient slowly will tend to overestimate their knowledge. And I think that's very easy in the world of point of care sonography because from maybe not getting any images of the heart, you now start seeing the heart, right? And uh, that humbleness that you that you mentioned, Jose, I think is very important for that journey, no matter what level of expertise you have, but to always seek for, for coaching, to seek for other people's opinion, and to be open to, 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 to feedback because ultimately the goal is really to, to improve. Thank you. Um, Go ahead. No, please. And I was going we to say this might be a perfect uh, lead way to talk about competence and training and certification for intensivists. As we wrap up, uh, if you maybe can just give us some, some thoughts. I know from your review article and from others that uh, more and more medical schools are introducing basic ultrasonography into their curriculum, but still only 30% maybe have something and there's tremendous variation there. More and more residency programs, more and more fellowships but there seems to be still a lot of variation. And also as more and more trainees get trained in ultrasonography, there's still a large number of practicing intensivists who may have varying degrees of exposure to ultrasonography. So how do we advance the needle for everybody? And what are the um, thoughts on competence uh, and certification would be very helpful. Thank you, Sergio. Uh, no better way to kind of Let's start wrapping up. Um, this this goes to the core of my existence. This goes to the core to have my own identity. If you think about it, that three layers, you start with the inner component of identity is who you are. And then the next one is process. And the last one will be basically the outcomes. So the problem people have is when they when they when they think about it, they they just oh I'm gonna use this because they go they jump to the outcomes right away. I would claim to just go to the basics, who you are, okay, and an intensivist. Okay, are you an intensivist and focus practitioner? 
Okay, are you an intensive focus practitioner and competent or even better proficient in point of care ultrasonography? Once you answer that question, you can really, really go to that pathway or creating a community that have a unified identity. We don't have that yet. Why? Well, some people believe that you get a two-hour training course, you're done. Some people believe half a day. Oh, some people believe you have to pay X thousands of dollars to have a certificate of completion. Well, some people believe that you can do this online and come and have the tool for several hours. So to answer your question, we actually, we actually advised the New England Journal of Medicine readership. What are the, the, the two questions remains to be answered? And one of them is that we don't have uh, any uh, uniformity on the way to obtain competence, unfortunately. The, in the, because of that, anybody who wants to do a trial on that, that might be welcome. What I can tell you is that what we have is, number one, medical schools. Okay, we have our medical education. Big, big time, big time. I will tell you why. When we wrote the, the actually the, the manuscript, that was right. It was like one third or one third of the um, medical school have curriculum. This past month, 57% in a new publication. It's going. And I can envision that in the next two years, it might be over 75%. Uh, that's, that's a fact. So I think we need to go back to those bases. I think the medical schools will have it. So Jose, but you're kind of, you're discriminating me. I, I'm not gonna be in the medical school again. That was 30 years ago. What do you have for me? Well, I do believe that we need to have an entry point. Uh, I think that entry point has been um, discussed. I think the next way to do this in a good way for you that you are a tremendous leader in this country for community hospitals, and I still respect you even more than many other academicians, you have the ability to start creating some strong focus committees on those community hospitals. Let's bring people together. Let's create a committee. Do your own course. Know your own equipment. Name your champion. Start actually collecting data. There are people who are doing it. I do not, I will not endorse ever one organization versus another organization course, even though everybody probably has seen all what I have done for, uh, for SCCM, and I owe the SCCM probably the majority of my experience regarding education in critical health on earth, but I wanna be fair. Everybody should be able, if, that's, if you have the resources, if you can arrange that, if you, you can put your, your hospital to go to that course, go for it, whichever is the organization. But I, I think from the practical perspective, somehow probably the organization has to think as well to offer those courses in the hospital. And for instance, I know that the SCCM is doing it. So we need to do that at that level. That once you do that in terms of competence, okay, you ask me, Jose, does everybody has to become board certified in critical care echocardiography? The straightforward answer is no, no way. You don't need that. We did a publication a couple of years back with a traveler, Baron, and others uh, from, from Europe and Asia. And we put there that probably it's reasonable to have at least one person that is advanced. The other ones have basic competence. In, a, in, in the ICU. And I think that's reasonable. And that's what would you do? There would be people actually who would like to have that uh, critical care certification, go for it. But I will tell you, uh, for, for the most part, when we are utilizing this in the ICU, it's unreasonable to expect that's the way to do it. And the certification, um, I'm, I'm part of that committee uh, on the exam and the certification um, is another committee, and so far things are going well, I think. However, I'm 
there is a huge opportunity here for, as I said before, if we collaborate much more meaningfully with the cardiologists, we can actually ensure that our clinicians can have the number of examinations to prove the competency. And that's right now a roadblock there. And I want to be transparent. I, I receive calls, emails, Jose, we need to have that 150 study, how to do it. It's not easy. Now, I have done tremendous effort in my, in my institution. My two anesthesia critical care fellows are expected to get out of the fellowship, which is only one year, with that certification. They work really hard, and that requires a lot of effort from me. But just me, as I said, my identity, how will be in this podcast if I'm not ensuring that the next generation of leaders in anesthesia critical care do not have the certification to continue utilizing the tool and educator the following generation? I, I can't. So for that reason, uh, it requires a multiple levels. The competence aspect requires a, is a multi-layer intervention. It's not only one piece to go into one course of spending $10,000. I have enormous sensitivity for our international and, and overseas clinical practices that actually don't have the luxury to spend even $500. I have been educated in countries that even $200 has been very hard for them, and I need to teach in a ratio of 20, 20 students and one faculty versus what we do in the U.S. that most of the time is between four and five. A good echo training, it takes you to that ratio. So I, I want to say in the end that, you know, regardless which pathway you um, are taking, remember my own pathway. Um, my own pathway was putting things together myself. And, and did I pay for one course? Probably yes. If I recall well, yes. But actually, it was um, it was it was a course where actually there were um, retirees that they have some um, bad pathologies and stuff because I wanted real. I didn't want just the healthy volunteer, and I paid for that. And after that, I said, well, now I can see real the real pathology. Now, now I can contrast. So, and most of the people do that. They just go to the one that are the beautiful pictures uh, with the normal uh, healthy volunteers. So anyhow, remember the multi-layer intervention to tackle the issue of competence in focus is real. It's multi-layer, it's not gonna be that simple and requires everybody's commitment to take uh, our practice to the next level. Excellent, and part of the, the, the intent obviously of having this conversation um, was to, to get everybody um, to make me make a commitment as the new year comes to wherever they are in their journey of focus in the ICU to either move forward and learn something new and get better or more competent in answering specific questions or specific uses, or if they already feel that they've achieved the certification and consider themselves a master's to then help others move forward in that journey. But I think your points are well taken, Jose, that it requires really a lot of effort from the individual it's much it's much more than just going to a course uh, and that ultimately there are different levels that would be perfectly suitable for for different practitioners right but no matter who you are you probably can improve your competency in utilizing focus to answer specific questions at the bedside and help your your care of your patient and i think that should be the goal for everybody moving forward I would like to, to wrap up, uh, Jose, with a, a couple of questions that are not related to the world of ultrasonography, if that's okay. Absolutely, Sergio. Anything from you. <laughs> so the first question is about books that have influenced you the most or books that you have gifted often to others. All right. Yes. Um, I think... I think perhaps the book that has influenced me the most has been Essentialism. Um, it's about the discipline pursuit of less. 
um, is written by Greg McEwen. And in that book, I was able actually to understand that one, whenever in my life, or even very often in critical care echocardiography, if it's, if it's not a clear yes, then it's a clear no. Like black and white, as simple as it is. If it's, if it's not a clear yes, then it's a clear no. Because we are all busy. They're gonna come to you with offers with this and that. And if people really now wants to have that prominence, social media, everything. And all of a sudden, you end up involved many things, but you end up not doing even one minimal, meaningful thing for yourself, your family, and your patients. So that's one. The other thought I have in that book is that it really exemplifies really well about your highest priority is to project your ability to prioritize. If you don't prioritize for yourself, somebody else will do it for you and you will lose control and pretty much you not, you're not gonna do what you enjoy the most. So I always prioritize in my life based on that book. Yeah, the other, excellent. Um, excellent book. Yeah. I was going to say that when when you mentioned the book, the first thing that came to mind is if you don't set your priorities, somebody will set them for you, right? And that was one of yeah. like the lessons I took, and I would definitely link this into into the show notes. And sorry, I interrupted you. You were going to say something else. No, um, the other, uh, you know, basically. Um, of course, I mean not not everyone who's coming to to the um, to your podcast is a leader, but you know something that ultrasonography might um, allow you to do is to lead, and, and eventually, I think um, that that was my case, and I ended up I ended up. Uh, leading ultrasound courses and projects, academic projects, and all those kind of things. So, uh, so that's an interesting as aspect of point of care ultrasonography. So the other book that I like is actually um, the book on leadership and self-deception. In, in, in that one, and uh, that book for sure, um, um, that basically is the authorist for Arbinger Institute, but the the way I look at things is as a leader, you really need to go to the bottom of the problems. You cannot ignore things. And it's just to pretend that you are making out things and make them look beautiful once again, instead of actually going to the to the to the core and 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 have that identity that you might have with others and really engage others with meaningful relationships is absolutely critical for your success as a leader. Absolutely. And, and I would like to, 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 to end with uh, just asking you, what would you want every intensivist that's listening today, every clinician, uh, whether a physician or APP to know, it could be a quote or fact or just a thought. Thank you for asking that. I would say the following. Um, in order for us to have better leaders in the future, if you are in a leadership position, you don't need to spread the leadership everywhere. You should facilitate others to become leaders. And if you cannot be a mentor, you still can be a supporter. You probably wouldn't have seen me over the last decade in more than two societies, and that's the reason why. It is not my intention to be in 10 societies and every single ultrasound meeting the same Jose. No, no, no. I will be more interested in the people who wants to actually have the proper professional development to flourish. We need to give opportunity to others. We need to spread, we need to share that, you know, um, 
whatever wellness you have right now, and I feel very strong about it. So that's the reason pretty much um, most of my uh, investment with my time goes to the SCCM and the American Society of Echocardiography. And uh, I think uh, I, I would like to support others in, in the other societies because once again, uh, it's not about you. It's about everybody. And we, we really need to be more sensitive with this participation. And I, I will tap the talent from the very early stages in their careers. If somebody has the drive, if somebody really wants to go to the next level, support that person. So that's a very personal belief. I know criticizing others I probably has much more talent than myself and probably have better abilities to be everywhere. But in principle, I think we need to share more what we have with our with our colleagues. That's my thought. Yeah, I think that's a perfect place to stop, Jose. I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us, sharing your expertise on this fascinating area of critical care, but also sharing your wisdom outside of ultrasonography in terms of being very um, regimented and picking up what's important for ourselves and making sure that we can help others move forward as well. So I hope to have you back uh, soon to talk about other topics. And uh, once again, thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Ariel. I, I look forward to see you in person soon in beautiful Houston. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.